Take your Bible, please, and meet me in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Uh, For those who may not be aware, uh, well, we're returning, we're rejoining our study through the book of Acts. And so for those who may not be aware, uh, this is our typical modus operandi where we choose... Uh, a book of the Bible, and we just work our way, walk our way through it um, from beginning to end. And we do this because, uh, like any story, uh, it's important to see the characters and contours of the story as it unfolds from one chapter to the next. Uh, I know that we're just coming off of a summer series, more of a topical series, and I will say that Um, isolating certain passages or addressing certain topics or issues, there's absolutely a place for that. Uh, However, I do believe that if we want to grasp the, uh, if we want to kind of grasp the true meaning of Scripture as God is revealing it, as He is just revealing uh, uh, the story within the story, the grand story from Genesis to Revelation, and then the parts of the story in each of these 66 books, if we want to really grasp the truer meaning of Scripture, I think it's important that we read it in its own context. And so we are back in the book of Acts after a bit of a hiatus. Uh, We're past the, by way of a a recap, we're past the midpoint uh, in the story. We're rejoining the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey which at this time found him in Greece, in the ancient city of Athens. Now, we already considered this passage once earlier this year, back in May, a passage uh, in which Paul was deeply touched or troubled by the rampant idolatry he observed in that city. In fact, this bothered him so much that he couldn't sit idly by anymore. He just he had to do something about it. And so he began talking with people. He began talking with Jewish people and with other devout people. Uh, then he went out into the marketplace and he was talking with just common people uh, as well as the various philosophers of the day. And he was preaching Jesus. And, those, and though the people were intrigued by his message, he, he did garner a following, people were intrigued, but they weren't getting it. They weren't really understanding it, and so they invited him to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was basically just a large hill, or you might just picture kind of a large rock outcropping that overlooked the city, and it was here on this hill where where new ideas and the philosophies of life were often exchanged. As we return to this scene this morning, I want us to look at it in a slightly different way than we did before. I want us to think about the places in our lives where we talk about the issues of life and faith with others who may think differently than we do. In other words, I want you to think about your Areopagus. What is that place 
for you. Coffee shop, perhaps. Hair salon. The, the bleachers at a little league youth baseball game. Maybe it's your living room or patio or the break room at work. Think about those places where you interact with people who believe differently than you. People who aren't sure what to make of the God you follow. How might you help them to understand? How might you encourage them along on this path of faith? And what we see, I think, from this passage is that we help to make the unknown known simply by clarifying who God is and who we are in relation to him. So I want to read this with you. Acts chapter 17. We'll we'll pick it up at verse 16. And we'll read through the end of the chapter through verse 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with with whoever happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for, for you bring some strange things to our ears. And we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and, and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, 
for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him, and they believed. Among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Will you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you again for our time in the scripture today. Even as we look back at this account that occurred so many centuries ago in a uh, much different part of the world, we recognize its similarity to our lives today in our part of the world. And so we pray that you would teach us from the example of our brother Paul as he engaged and interacted with the Athenians. I pray that you would help each one of us to see ourselves in his shoes, maybe to put ourselves in his shoes, and to see ourselves in those places in our lives where we interact with people of different philosophy or religious persuasion or no religion at all so that we might be of some help to them in ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. So come and just uh, enable our hearing and enliven our desire to, to respond and be doers of what you say here. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The year is, it's about uh, A.D. 49. Paul is standing in the Areopagus, as we said, where ideas and philosophies were exchanged uh, regularly, including religious thought. Honestly, I doubt, I doubt you could find a better place at that time in the ancient world. I, I doubt you could find a better place in which to share the truths of God with such a wide audience and from from that place in Athens how being kind of the educational center of the world at that time how sharing Christ in that place with those people and just have it disseminate out into the world I doubt you could find a better place already the Athenians worshipped all kinds of gods either trying to appease them or to win them over So thoroughly committed were they to their pantheon of deities, they had even built an altar to the unknown God, or what what you might call a just-in-case God. Just in case you weren't sure which God to address or 
or just in case you forgot to recognize one of the many, the altar to the unknown God was there to cover all your bases. And I believe that we live in in a somewhat similar culture today. In that people today often worship what they do not know. Or they they worship in a way that they they worship with kind of a just-in-case mentality. They may not know what they're doing. They may not even know why they believe what they believe. But they're doing it and they're believing it, nonetheless, just in case they're supposed to. Paul, Paul saw this as an opportunity to make the unknown known by introducing the Athenians to his God, to the one true God, saying, uh, what therefore you worship as unknown... This I proclaim to you. Now, what exactly did he proclaim? And therefore, what can we learn from him and thus share with others? I think in verses 24 through 31, which is his speech, his message on uh, there at the Areopagus, I think we learn in these verses five realities concerning the truth of God and our relation to him. And I want to walk through these five things with you in the remainder of our time. Number one, and again, I want you to think about this in one of two ways. Either I want you to think about this as this is, this is how I can help someone in my Areopagus understand more about who God is. You need to think about it that way. Or, If you're here or you're hearing these words and you're unsure of what to make of God, you can personalize it and think about it as if the scripture is speaking to you, answering your questions even now and even here. The first thing we see here is that God is the creator and author of life. Paul begins with the supremacy of God or the supreme authority of God or what we might call the godness of God. He says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. The word God, theos, refers specifically to deity while Lord, kurios, means supreme particularly in in reference to one's authority. So Paul is beginning where we must all begin by recognizing the sovereign rule of God over heaven and earth. The God of the Bible is not one among many. He is the one and only. He has no equal. He has no rival. He is not numbered among the pantheon of deities to which we ascribe certain powers or areas of control or influence. This is why he is not merely a sun god. He is not merely a moon god. He is not merely a god of love. He is not a god of war or a god of sex. He's not, he's not one of these so-called deities that people would look to in certain areas of their lives. 
or for certain specific things. God cannot be parsed in these ways or made to fit into our preconceived categories. He is not confined to temples of our construction, either literally or figuratively. God is infinitely bigger. He is the creator of the entire universe and thus the Lord of heaven and earth. All other so-called gods fall before Him. So who are we to think that God needs us in any way? That He needs our temples. That He needs our altars. That He needs our idols or our religiosity. No, 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 no. He has made the world and everything in it, and He and He alone is who gives to all humankind life and breath and everything. There is a God and you are not him. He is the creator and author of life, the supreme authority over your life. Number two, God is present and involved in your life. God is present and involved in your life. Now, there are some who think of God as a cosmic clockmaker. Maybe you've heard this theory. This philosophy which suggests that although God created all things, He is not actively involved in their daily operations. He is instead like a cosmic clockmaker who wound the clock up at creation and then stepped back and let things unwind and unfold however they will. But this is not the God of the Bible. Scripture reveals that God's rule isn't impersonal or disconnected from everyday life, quite the opposite, uh, which Paul now brings to their attention. Unlike the lesser gods, supposedly responsible for specific things only, he's saying that the one and only God is ever-present, and He is providential. God gives us life and breath. And then verse 26 says that He set humanity on their, on their course and established all the nations of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. We must ask ourselves, why do we live at this point in history and in this part of the world? Why, why, why were we born here and now? And, and not in ancient Ur, like Abraham, or during the Roman Empire, or at some point in the Dark Ages. Why were you born in America, most of us, in this land of wealth and plenty, not somewhere else in the world, struggling for basic subsistence? Why is our family heritage what it is, including our race and our ethnicity? All of these things, and so many other factors like them, are completely beyond 
our control. We had no say in these matters. And it all owes to God's providence. To the fact that he created us and determines the allotted periods and boundaries in which we exist. He, he decides the when and the where of our lives. And he takes interest in us. There is purpose in his providence, namely that we should seek God, Paul says, and feel our way toward God and thus find God. You see, God's providence and God's presence go together. I know people, and you do also, who subscribe to fate or destiny, to kismet or karma. They believe life is, is a matter of happenstance. It's beyond any, any control whatsoever, and somehow the universe itself will make sense of what seems so senseless to us. But to recognize the hand of providence is, and see God's involvement in your life is to draw near to Him who is drawing near to you. If you've ever wondered why you live during this time in history or in this place on the planet or why you are encountering the various circumstances of your life, the overarching answer is that God is trying to get your attention. I believe it was Pascal who first put forth the idea of a God-shaped hole that exists in all of us meaning that because we are created by God and for God, for relationship with God, there exists in us an emptiness, a, a hole of sorts that isn't made whole until that relationship is restored. I think it's interesting that in our world, it seems the more authority a person has, the less approachable or available he or she is. And yet that, that's not the case with God. God has all the authority and he is completely approachable. He is actually not far from each one of us, verse 27. And then in verse 28, Paul quotes from two of their poets. I, I really love what he does here. First from Epimenides, from a poem written centuries earlier in which Epimenides said of Zeus, in him we live and move and have our being. And then Paul quoted a Stoic philosopher named Eratus who lived in the 3rd century B.C. and wrote that we are indeed his offspring. And again, he was referring to Zeus. And so what Paul is doing here is he's quoting people they knew and respected, but he's saying these things that you've been reading and thinking all these years aren't true of Zeus but they are true of God. 
God is present and involved in your life. Number three, God is beyond all compare. Even your wildest imagination. Being then God's offspring, verse 29, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And here I believe Paul is stressing the incomparable nature of God, emphasizing that since we are from God and not the other way around, uh, of course we cannot confine him to an image, to an idol or an image of our making. He cannot be captured by an image of gold or silver or stone because his greatness and his worth is far beyond even our imagination. Like, like even if we can conceive, even if our motive, let's just assume, like even if our motive is pure and we want to craft this image of God with the finest gold, the purest gold, and lots of it, and we just imagine something spectacular, we can't even conceive of something that would begin to express God's great worth. I want to read a passage for you. It's lengthy, but it's worthwhile. It's how the prophet Isaiah described for the people of Israel the incomparable greatness of God. And for reference, this is in Isaiah 40, if you want to go back and look into it later. Isaiah said, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did God consult? And who made God understand? Who taught God the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one, obviously. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold... He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. But do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is God who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely 
these rulers, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. So to whom will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes. Look up. Look up into the sky. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out all these stars by number. Who calls them all by name by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not a single one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths, even even young people who are so full of vitality, even youths, shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I wanted to quote that in its entirety because the themes that Isaiah shared with the people of Israel are present here in Paul's message to the people of Athens. Paul wanted them to have a right view of God because when people begin to see God for who He truly is, they begin to realize that He is beyond all compare. In fact, I believe, I think one of the biggest breakthroughs in a person's life occurs when he or she comes to realize precisely this, that nothing compares with him. And this brings us to the next point, to point number four. God is calling you to repent. He is calling you to repent. As incomparable as He is, and though though in Him we live and move and have our being, all too often, we still ignore God or try to live our lives in a way that's convenient for us, but belittling to Him. And so Paul wanted the Athenians to know the mercy of God and the need for repentance. The times of ignorance God overlooked, he says in verse 30, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. I think it's important that we see God's kindness and patience here in these words and his understanding of us. He knows that we don't know everything or know things to their fullest extent. He knows we don't fully understand him 
or even ourselves, and certainly not the perilous consequences of our sin. He is patient with us and overlooks our ignorance for a time, but he is also very clear with us in communicating the expectation that we must repent, which itself is a display of mercy on his part toward us because he wants us to acknowledge and turn to him. He wants that. He wants that for us. I want you to think about it in terms of your relationships or the way you respond to some of the people in your life. Now, isn't it true that although some people may wrong you or ignore you or underappreciate or devalue you in some way, they don't always realize it and therefore you're more likely to let it go, to not make a big deal out of it to overlook their ignorance. Not because it doesn't matter, not because their behavior, their wrong behavior doesn't matter, it does, but you're willing to overlook certain offenses because you know they don't know. And because love covers a multitude of sins. But there comes a point, doesn't there, when enough is enough. You can only go so far with someone who wrongs you repeatedly and shows no remorse or desire to change. I think what Paul is saying here is basically that. He's saying that God has been incredibly patient with you. In love, He's overlooked your ignorance. All those times when you didn't do what you should have done or what you, when you did what you shouldn't, but, but now he's saying enough is enough because the time is coming when God will call you to account. Yet still he loves us and, and thus he gives us a chance to change our ways while there's still time, while we still can, to change our attitude, to change our behavior, to change the, the general direction of our lives. You see, although God is sovereign over our lives and personally involved in our lives, He has created us with the ability to choose right from wrong, which means that, that, it's, that it's on us to decide whether or not we want to follow Him. That's what repentance is, right? That's what repentance is, essentially. It's an act of the will in which we turn uh, we make a conscious decision to turn from going our way to go the way of God instead. You realize that sometimes our greatest mistake is trying to fit God into our lives when, in fact, He's inviting us into His. Being religious is not enough and will get you nowhere in the end. The Athenians were very religious, very religious. But empty religion or religion for its own sake cannot absolve sin or restore you to God. For that we need His mercy, we need His grace, which He supplies abundantly. 2 Peter 3.9 states, The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach 
repentance. Romans 2.4 says that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Clearly then, God is calling you to repent. And then number five, lastly, because God is just and he has fixed a day of judgment. Why is repentance necessary? Because God is just. And as verse 31 attests, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Here in this statement, we we learn the when, who, and how of God's judgment. When will God judge? He will judge on the day that he has already fixed. He has already chosen or predetermined or determined this day, and everything between now and then is leading us to that great day. Every day that passes is one day closer to the coming judgment. We don't know exactly when that day will be. Not even Jesus knows the exact day, but we know it's coming. So we must take heed of the opportunity to repent while we can. No doubt you've experienced, I know you have, you've experienced uh, the regret of having an opportunity slip through your fingers, right? You know that feeling. You know the constant second-guessing. You know what it's like to be on the other side of a missed opportunity, just wishing you could go back and do things over again. We've all had those kind of experiences. And Paul is saying, don't let this be one of those. A day is coming. And who will God judge? He will judge the world, meaning the world of humanity. It includes all of us, each one of us. God will judge every person who has ever lived, every person living today, and every person who will live in the days to come. All people in in all places from all times throughout human history will face this judgment in some way. And how will God judge, or by what standard will He judge? It says He will judge in righteousness, meaning that His judgments will be in perfect accordance with all that is perfectly right. You know, our justice system doesn't get it right all the time, does it? In our system, it's not always about right or wrong, but about what can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. There are legal loopholes that can be exploited. Sometimes shoddy police work means that certain things aren't admissible into court. The presence of corruption or even just human error sometimes frees the guilty and convicts the innocent. But not so with God. With God, righteousness prevails. It's not a matter of how much money you have 
or how influential you are or how talented or beautiful you are or how many good deeds you do. When it's all said and done, it's simply a matter of whether or not you are found righteous before God. And since none of us are perfectly righteous, I assume we can all agree on that. And since none of us are perfectly righteous, who will stand under such careful examination? Answer? Only those who share in the righteousness of Christ. Paul says he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. Elsewhere in Acts chapter 10, for example, we learn who this man is. It says that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. In John chapter 5, Jesus himself said, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to me, to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And of this we can be sure, Paul says, because God has raised Jesus from the dead. Through Christ's death on the cross, he atoned for all of our unrighteousness, and through his resurrection from the dead, he secured new and everlasting life for all who believe. And so it comes down, it really does come down to the object of your faith. Do you believe in yourself and your self-righteousness before God? And many do. Or do you believe in God and in his gift of righteousness in Christ. Like Abraham, whose faith in God was counted to him as righteousness, so will it be counted to us as we place our trust in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so if you're hearing this today, either in this room or you're hearing a recording of this somewhere else, if you're hearing this today and you're coming to realize that maybe you've not entrusted your life to Christ, you can now. You can place your faith in God and in the person and work of Jesus. Right where you are, you can admit your need for Jesus and as the Spirit of God takes residence in your life, you begin to follow Jesus and obey Jesus and live the life that Jesus aims to bring to you and live through you. This is the gift from God. It's a gift from God to you. You must simply receive it and believe it. As Christians, wherever we meet people, wherever that Areopagus is for you, wherever we meet people who don't understand what we believe or why, 
remember that we can help make the unknown known by simply, clar- simply by clarifying who God is and who we are in relation to him. God is the creator and author of life. God is present and involved in your life. God is beyond anything to which you can compare. With great mercy and patience and love, God is calling you to repent. Because God is just. And he has fixed a day of judgment at which time only the righteous who are found in Christ, only they will stand. Now, church, of course, all of this, uh, all of these things presupposes the presence of a genuine concern for the lost. Like Paul, it, it all begins with being provoked, troubled, bothered by the lostness we see in others. By the the, uh, idolatry and the misguided worship. And so, may there be, let there be a holy provocation arising within each of our hearts that desires to help others know more of God. People will respond to us much like they did to Paul as the chapter ends. Some mocked him. Some will mock us. Either to us or behind our backs. Some were piqued with interest and wanted to hear more. Some will have that response toward us. That's interesting. You've made an interesting point today. Let me think about that. Maybe we can pick this up again sometime. And some will believe. Some will believe. There's a Dionysius in your life. There's a Damaris in your life. Some will believe. May God help us to help them. Amen. We want to thank you again, God, for this time. And even now, I would just pray over the room. I'd pray over each person. I pray you'd bring to our minds the people in our lives and the places in our lives where we can discuss such things. And that you indeed, you would provoke us in a holy way by deepening our concern for the lost lost and for those who worship false gods. Help us to help them. Give us courage and faith assurance that you are with us and to leave all the results to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.